from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to Still Growing. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. I have another great show for you today. It's part two of my interview with Nancy Peters, the weed lady. But first, a reminder to check out the show notes for today's show at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find the Still Growing podcast in the top menu and then just scroll down to episodes. Still Growing is on iTunes as well as Stitcher Radio. If you happen to be listening on Stitcher, your radio, hit that little thumbs up button down in the corner. I'd greatly appreciate it. All right. So let me share a little bit about what's happening around here before we get into the interview. The forecast for this week is calling for a long heat wave. And if you're in the Midwest, it's pretty brutal right now. As I prepared for this episode, the temperature outside is 100 degrees and the heat index is about 107. And I keep thinking about those fabulous Irving Berlin lyrics about we're having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave, because it is also very humid outside. So this week, I'm scaling back on all of my activities. The heat has really turned me into a slug. And although I didn't quite plan it that way, it really is a perfect week to shrink my perspective and set a slower pace, especially with the kids transitioning back to school and Phil getting ready for his big trip to Harvard. I want to fill you in on a few things that are happening around Everest Lane House. I've noticed that the heat has really dampened the kids' appetites, and so that's a good thing because I'm not really doing much cooking right now, and I'm definitely not baking. We're having a lot of cold plates with shredded rotisserie chicken, so I'm really glad that I prepared all those chickens back in May, and then cheeses and yogurts and other such simple fare for meals. I've gone miniature on snack items as well. I love those little seven and a half ounce size pops. They're the tiny pops. They're about uh, less than half of the standard size of a, a can of pop. And they are really the only size I buy anymore because they offer perfect portion control and the kids don't waste as much either. Nothing distresses Phil more than coming into the kitchen or downstairs into the basement and seeing half empty cans of pop laying around. My other favorite purchase for the kids this summer is the little Ecuador bananas. And they're the little miniature bananas. They're about three inches long. They have the same taste as a regular size banana with all the same nutritional value. But they are much easier to add in at snack time, especially for kids with smaller appetites. So it's an easier way to negotiate some nutrition in with the kids. I think they also look really super cute in a basket on the breakfast table. And in three little chomps, the kids can polish one off. So there's no more half-eaten bananas left on the kitchen counter either. In my garden, this has been the perfect week to take little manageable steps in the garden. I have a dogtail cactus, which is a really cute cactus that I have as a house plant that had kind of overgrown. And so I trimmed it back and I set it outside on the south patio. And it has done fabulous out there. In fact, it's created all these new little babies. And now I can cut some off and pot them and give them to friends. My ornamental hydrangea tree is doing fabulous. And it's another great reminder that ornamental trees perform wonderfully outside. And you get a lot of color for 
I think, very little investment in terms of work. It's easy to forget about using ornamental trees for cut flowers, but these blooms are perfect in containers. And in the morning, I like to go out and cut them at a diagonal and place them in a bucket bucket of water right away. And my personal favorite is to have hydrangeas on nightstands. In the south patio, I've started harvesting cherry tomatoes, and I bought the really cute colorful cages last year at Home Depot. And the cherry tomatoes are so much easier for the kids to harvest. And I also find that they seem to be less uh, prone to disease and blight issues. So if you are having trouble with standard sized tomatoes, um, and especially if you have little kids, consider giving cherry tomatoes a try. And I'm also this year loving the bush cucumber that I planted in containers on the south deck. Some vines grew over the edge, but they are super easy to care for. And I like them so much better than the standard cucumber cultivars. They're just tidier and they're, they produce just a fabulous amount of product. So can't go wrong with the bush cucumbers. The red lettuce that the kids direct sowed two weeks ago is already... Uh, coming up nicely and it's ready to be thinned and transplanted into neat rows. Our plan is to direct sow again in containers on the north porch once the heat wave passes. Before I go, I have to tell you about this crazy awesome photo that I found at Goodwill this week. It made me chuckle and it's on my blog and it's on the post called We're Having a Heat Wave. It's at the bottom and it shows a boat that's got two guys in it and they're saying hi to these two girls that are on the shoreline. But the the sweet and kind of funny part about it is that it is a total 1970s picture. And it just brought me right back to my childhood. And I, I just can't stop laughing about it. So if you get a chance and you want to go check it out, it's on the blog this week. In any case, it's time to resume my interview with Nancy Peters. When we closed part one of the interview last week, we heard, we were having a discussion about Canadian thistle. And then once Nancy is done discussing Canadian thistle and its cousins, she's going to move into her method of fighting invasives. So um, it's a great episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. So let's listen to the interview. Back to Canadian thistle. If I'm yeah. seeing thistle in my garden, should I just assume it's all Canadian thistle or there are a lot of no. different varieties? No, there are a lot of different varieties, but most of them are weeds. Okay. Yeah, if you and, see bull thistle, which has the really big flower, okay, and it has the head that looks like it's called a morning star in medieval weaponry. It's like a round ball with sharp things on it. Yeah, it looks like a weapon. That that one is fairly benign. Okay, it doesn't. It's not a vigorous self sower, but you don't want to touch it either. Yeah, so no, they're the growing. It? Yeah, they're they're vicious. You know, when you pull them, they're I vicious. always tell all the kids that help me in the garden, I'm like, go way down low because if you try to grab a mid stock, you're in for trouble. So, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. Well, look at how long that you know. I read that statistic to 23 feet deep and 18 feet of extensive laterals. Yeah, it sounds hopeless, doesn't it? it it's hopeless. You just keep pulling it and pulling it. Mm-hmm. You you uh, you treat it and repeat it. Yeah. Pull it and then you pull it again. Yeah. And if you cover if you cover the soil up with, you know, you could do biodegradable cardboard or newspaper. I did that for my uh, the fallopia japonica, the Japanese knotweed. I covered the soil over. I did it for bittersweet um, oriental bittersweet that vine. Yep. Did it help? I dug down several feet, and then I 
Yeah, it did. I, but, you know, it's really extreme measures. You have to really do some serious digging. It's a ton of work. You dig down, put down, you know, uh, a, a solid two foot of compost, cover it with landscape fabric. If you put the, the weed barrier down underneath the compost and, and then you put another layer of compost and then mulch. I mean, you're talking like a big project. Yeah. But they didn't come back. They they snuck out the side to the neighbor's yard. Oh. But they stopped bothering me. A but little, it was a, little a huge undertaking. I did that with with the other thing too, where you dig out as much of the root as you can get, put down cardboard or newspaper or something that's biodegradable eventually. Mm-hmm. That's a weed barrier and put down lots of soil, put yeah. down weed fabric, compost. I, I just did something similar to try to eradicate some creeping buttercup. That I planted. Yeah, you mentioned that one. Yes, I just hate that plant. And I I, I didn't dig down, but I put at least five layers of newspaper, and then I planted a, a, a plant. I can't remember what it is now. But um, it was fully grown in the pot from the nursery, so I thought, okay, this baby's already established. And, you know, first we pulled it all out, and then I... I put some preen down, and then I covered it with newspaper, and then I threw on some mulch. So we'll see how it does. Right, but don't don't forget the buttercup has probably poisoned the soil underneath. So it'll take time. Yeah, it will take Just time. Keep feeding your new plant, and I, I assume it's in a moist spot. Yes, it is. Buttercup. Yeah, so I hope your plant likes moisture. Yes, it was a boggy plant. Um, oh, good. I'll send yeah, you the so name it, of it when I when I yeah, when I get my so faculties be, back. I'm pro- I was probably yeah. so irritated while I was dealing with the buttercup, I couldn't even retain the name of the plant that I was. Oh putting no, out, I know. You know, but another question you pose in your book is whether the plant is invasive in the wild, and yes. I found it very interesting that you uh, made note in your book that many of these types of plants were brought in by the pioneers and other settlers. That's right. Yeah. What's one it of your favorite stories? Hi. What's one of your favorite stories about something that, you know, hitched a ride that, with the pioneers? That hitched a ride. Well, I like the one about General Burgoyne because that was accidental. But, you know, people definitely imported dandelion. Oh, mugwort. How about mugwort? Yeah, tell about mugwort. Mugwort is uh, often called chrysanthemum weed. It looks like a mum when it's growing and it smells like a mum. Okay. Well, people thought if you put it in your pillow and went to sleep at night... You'd have good dreams, and it would lead you to the love of your life. Hmm. And witches have used it to clean their their um, crystal balls. It's supposed to be very effective magic, and it's supposed to be good for seasoning because it's terribly invasive. Do you think but it would be good he, for cleaning mirrors? Uh, probably. If it's good for cleaning crystal balls, it'll probably make you look, I don't know, 40 pounds thinner or something in the mirror. Yeah, it'll give windows to be magic. Yeah, there you go. It'll make you look like Raquel Welsh when you go to the mirror. All right, everybody, go buy mugwort. <laughs> yeah, go buy mugwort. It'll make you look good. <laughs> no, but, you know, and, and it's it's also supposed to, uh, talk, you're supposed to rub it on magic tools, so it's known as an aphrodisiac, too. So that's why people, people brought it here, because, you know, they thought it would, you know, is the medicinal and it would work for them, but it's, you know, taken over. It's too invasive now. It's too invasive. Have yeah. you ever had it in your garden? Not here. Not so much here. I have found it a few times here, but I had it a lot in Long Island. I think it likes the drier, uh, drier soil, and it particularly likes soil near cement because it's like something slightly alkaline. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I'm in really acidic soil here, and it was acidic in Long Island, but there were more alkaline spots. You see fields of it huh. on the side of a nursery. Man, you could just see a whole big sea of mugwort growing. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah, well, they love Long Island. You know, there are a whole bunch of things that love Long Island. Hmm. And there are things that love this place that I didn't know over there. Wow. Now, some weeds are true survivors, flourishing in the worst environments where other plants would never make it. How is that possible? And what is it that you have found about these amazing survivors? Are they just plain more adaptable? They are plain more adaptable. They have genetic fluidity that most plants don't possess. We breed the genetic adaptability of our plants out of them to trade for beauty or edibility or other features. But there's no one growing, no one is cultivating the weeds to do anything but themselves. They're the only ones growing themselves and they want to survive. There are also lots of untended area for them to grow in. When you think about how much land, even in the most cultivated area, if you have an area between two properties that doesn't belong to anyone or if it's part of one HOA and not part of another HOA or if it's behind a parking lot or if it's in a municipal area where people would have to vote or a train station or a bus station, they have so much territory. And anything, nature by definition abhors a vacuum and will cover the soil with something. Um, and I, 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 I compare them to a tough fortuitous or gifted kid who comes from a slum and survives to productive adulthood despite impossible odds. And they, they just, they can. They can bloom in the desert once it rains. They can go in the most desolate of lots and they decorate them. In terms of are they just more adaptable, uh, they genetically more faster than scientists can say new formula. And weeds can change form to suit the environment and to just a variety of soil conditions. So like that, we mentioned the thug on the run yeah. who shaves or grows his mustache, dyes his hair, dresses as a woman, moves to the cold wilderness of Alaska. <laughs> or, or Minnesota. Garbage yeah. or, or Minnesota, <laughs> Minnesota up yeah. in, the, in the Lake of the Woods, yeah. Canada, or foraging for bugs and bark. Um, and the the renegade weeds can become smaller or taller. If you mow, they'll become smaller. And the thing I love is that they're gender benders. They'll develop more male or female gender cells as needed. They will grow faster, change shape, blend in with the crowd, not like Vinny, cousin, my cousin Vinny. Yes. They didn't blend like you yes. blend. Yeah, he did. The two blend. youths. They blend. <laughs> youths, yeah. The youths. youths. Yeah, the youths. <laughs> they flourish in the shade or the sun, tolerate drought, flood, and consume mere scraps and infertile soil in order to survive. So not only will they grow in the poor soil, they will also grow into your nice soil. So red sorrel, which is one of my least favorites and which grows like, I had some of it in Long Island, but I really have a lot of it here where it's really acidic and the soil is clay and it's heavy and unaerated and you need a pickaxe to break it open. And you called it red sorrel? Uh, It's red sorrel, Rumex acetosula. Okay. Um, it indicates an acid soil. Hmm. It will grow into your nice, balanced compost pile and your composted beds. And it has roots way bigger than it only grows to 18 inches tall. Hmm. But the roots will grow immense. Wow. It's a huge colony. It's like and an iceberg. At, like an iceberg, right? There's mm-hmm. more of it than, than meets the eye. Hmm. 
So even though it's supposed to be delicious, I won't eat it because it it has soured my taste. It's the principle. <laughs> it's the principle. Well, it's the principle. <laughs> well, it, it impugns my skill as a gardener. Every time I see it, I say, you're telling me something bad about my soil. <laughs> I have failed. I have failed. I have composted. I have dug you out. I have composted again. I have irrigated. I have planted a competitor, and yet you keep returning. <laughs> I have failed. I have failed. <laughs> curse, so that's, you, I, curse you. Right I hear so a lot of noise from my weeds. They talk to me. <laughs> Uh, dandelion also will grow in root-covered, compacted shade of a Norwegian maple or in the full sun of a maintained gardener, garden bed. They'll become long and spindly or short and compact. I think I like them better when they're long and spindly. I don't know why. I think they're, well, that's because they're usually, yeah, that, when they're in the shade. Is when they're long and yeah, spindly. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Yeah, I like them when they grow really tall. Yeah, they're juicier too then. They are juicier. Well, when they grow in fertile beds, they get enormous. They really get beautiful. And Well, let me not go there. Yes. <laughs> we digress. <laughs> I, still, I, still, I still pull them out. I, I look at them and admire them and pull them out. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I do have little kids still. And so I get my share of little dandelions given to me. Because they blow. Yeah. I love the cartoons. There's one cartoon that shows a guy directing the kid who's going to blow on it to the neighbor's yard. (laughs) Go go blow the weeds over there. (laughs) Nice. Now tell our listeners what a monoculture is. You mention it in your book. And I know on one of your questions, you describe how if you have a monoculture, it makes it easier to spot weeds. Well, if you have a bed where only one crop grows, for example, only corn, and where there are wide, unplanted rows between the crops, you can see anything that isn't a corn and will stand out. If you plant only roses or only red tulips or only daylilies, weeds stand out. And if you have well-organized plantings, they will highlight anything that is other. Yeah. So it's like having, you know, a conformist society where every single, you know, if you're not a Stepford wife, you stand out. But in a mixed planting, which is what most people grow unless they're farmers, they have the process of recognizing, um, the process of recognizing weeds becomes very complex. Because you can, you can see a broadleaf plant growing amidst the grass, and you know that's out of place. Mm-hmm. Or grass is growing in your flower border, although those may be early iris family members that have grassy leaves. True. But, even these parameters fail to clarify which plants are weedy. I was just thinking as you were talking about it. I mean, I'm definitely not a monoculture kind of gal. I'm very cottagey. Um, I had some visitors from Germany that had um, actually gone to see a neighbor across the street, and they came over to see my garden, and they said, you have a very German garden. And I thought, well, I'm part German. Maybe that maybe that's kind of coming through. Yeah. But, I don't like it when you have the mulch in between the plants or the rows. Yes. But I'm not trying to maximize my output of of anything. Yeah. It would be interesting to see if there's a correlation between like being an extrovert or a concrete concrete sequential person and then how you garden. Oh, absolutely there is. I don't know what it is, but there's definitely a connection. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm not the tidiest uh, gardener no. on the planet. No, and I, I, I met a woman who's really tidy. I went to her garden, and I was pea green with envy. Though it's the type of garden I cannot grow. Mm-hmm. Mulch in between individual plants, which each stood out clearly and well defined. Yeah, I'm like, 
what is that about? <laughs> I couldn't do it, but I was I was envious because any weed would clearly stand out. Yeah. Well, it's probably a control issue, right? And so I always just probably, say my, my garden pretty. goes. Yeah, it's beautiful. My garden goes to chaos so quickly that I just. Oh, mine too. Mine gets yeah. overgrown and yeah. whatever. But it's also, I also have seas of roses in rose season. I have seas of daylily. Now I have seas of flocks, oceans of flowers. It's, it's magnificent. Yeah. And that's that's what appeals to me. That's my my taste is. It's, nothing exceeds like excess. Yeah, I say that's true. Those mass plantings are really beautiful. They're wonderful, you know. And something really and and they cooperate with each other. These, you know, I have things timed so that one thing finishes. Where oh, it's in between season. No, it isn't anymore. Yeah, I found those in between seasons over the years, and I now have something that grows in all the seasons. Oh, that's so nice. I always tell people if you want to find out. When your garden goes dormant, be on a garden tour because the week before the garden tour, your garden will look splendid. And then the week of the tour, nothing will be blooming. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And that's, that's exactly right. Yes, it happens. It doesn't matter. I mean, I, I mean, just with that's seasonality exactly right. and weather, it just seems to always time that way. That and then, is a wonderful guideline. Yeah. And then you end up rushing out to the nursery and buying whatever annual you can still get your hands on because you need it. You need to add the color. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, us gardeners, we're just mere mortals, and it's also common to forget what you've planted. What quick tips do you have for gardeners who are somewhat paralyzed about a particular plant in their garden? They can't remember if it's something they planted or if it's something that they need to get rid of, like a weed. Well, what I did early days, and this really helped me, was I go to the garden center and look around, because when you go to, Long Island is just chock-a-block full of nurseries, and not so many here. But whatever you have that is just a baby growing, which is when you really can't remember if it's, uh, you know, phlox or goldenrod or whatever it is, but you, you can't tell what it is. When you go to the garden center and you look around, that particular plant is already in full bloom. They only sell things when they're almost in full bloom. You know, just about to burst into bloom, yeah. in full bloom, or just past bloom. And if you look around, you can look at their foliage, and they'll have what you're growing because you probably bought it there. And they'll have it in an earlier development. You'll you will have that they they have their plants come out of um, a greenhouse, so they bloom before yours do. So that's actually a really good place to check, but it has to be right in your zone. It has to be someplace really local. That's uh- the thing that helped me the most. We touched on uh, Queen Anne's Lace earlier, and it's a favorite of mine. It's a favorite of yours. Um, what would your advice be about allowing Queen Anne's Lace to grow in your garden? Is that something I that say, people need to be a little timid about? No. I say if you love it, grow it, but be, be careful that you don't eat it because it resembles two of the most toxic plants in the U.S. of A., uh, spotted water hemlock and poison hemlock. And it also resembles a couple of less poisonous um, weeds that grow in the U.S. of A. So it looks a lot like a lot of plants that it isn't. It also, the other downside of growing it is not only could it potentially be one of these lethal killers, it can also um, impugn the quality of your carrot crop. Because they will cross-fertilize with growing carrots. 
they will they will uh, crossbreed and they will make your crops inferior. And they're in the same family, right? They're a wild. They're, they carrot. are. Mm-hmm. It's wild carrot. Yeah. I mean, it is a wild carrot, and unlike um, real carrots, don't have the xylem in their in their root. root the xylem is what contains holds water. It's the the water retaining, like eating salt for a woman, you know, they retain water. Yeah. But the uh, the wild carrot can actually retain water in its roots. It doesn't need as much water in order to grow. Hmm. And for the carrot, that stuff is hard. It's it's a tough. It's like a cup or something, or a, or a, a bottle that you drink out of. And it's tougher than what regular carrots need regular replenishment from water, and they need softer soil to grow in because they're not as tough. So that's why you don't want it to cross breed and taste as good. And I haven't eaten it because I'm always afraid it's going to be cicuta maculata. <laughs> Those other scary things. Yes. Yeah. One of the uh, hemlocks actually smells like carrot. It does. The other one smells like mouse urine, which I've never smelled, but that's what everything I read said. Well, now you know, right? Well, I've never smelled the, the root of the spotted water hemlock either. I didn't want to dig it out of the weed garden. And the, the area of edible gardening is, is so important. Yes. It really is. I have, I, I gave a talk on edible, I called Nibble at Your Peril, about edibles and versus poisonous weeds. Yes. There's so much to know. And I just decided I was more interested in just weeds in general. Yes. So I, I sort of pulled back from the edibles to the, uh, but a lot of the good foraging is, is weeds. Nature is incredibly bountiful. And we would all know them if we didn't live in such close proximity to each other. But all those weeds, did you did you ever read the Clan of the Cave Bear books? No, I didn't. But that's what they all do. They all eat the weeds. When she talks about them, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that weed. Then with the cave woman. Well, anyway, they what would happen was they'd have a, a gathering where more than a few people would get together. They'd have like 20 or 40 people, like a scary number. Okay. And the whole area around the cave would be completely devoid of plant material when they were finished. So if we all knew the weeds, they would all evaporate because people would eat them. And that's why people started cultivating plants. You know, if you if you if you live in the wilds and the and it's low density population, you can go out and, you know, get the wildlife that's out there and eat it and get the wild plants that grow and you know, make a feast. But if you're in close proximity to a lot of people, the land, unless you organize it, will not produce the quantity of goods that you need without cultivation. That's why it's such it's a wonderful frontier, the edible. It's, it's actually old territory that we used to know that we've forgotten. Yes, like so many things. Bad. I was interviewing a cookbook lady, um, Beth Dooley, and she had written a farmer's market cookbook. Anyway, um, she goes to the farmer's market, and then she comes home, and she cooks with the food that she's gotten, and she doesn't follow a recipe. And I mentioned that to her. I said, you know, recipes, this technology, and the fact that we pass around, here's this recipe, we have lost the art of just cooking what we have. You know, so many people are paralyzed to cook if if they don't have a recipe in front of them. I was like that for you know, a good 20 years. It's only recently that I've started just, okay, what's in my fridge? I was so mystified by how neighbors of mine that were good cooks just could scrounge around their kitchen. and Yeah, and I just, I didn't have that skill. But now Um, you do. Now I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Um, Sport kids, you need it. Yes, 
Yes. And I'm teaching my kids to learn how to do that at a much younger age than I learned. And I think it's making a difference. So, yeah, it will. Yeah. It will. Yeah. Well, I loved your comparison of weeds to outlaws. We mentioned this earlier. They do change their identities or appearance to evade detection. Um, They have chameleon qualities. Why shouldn't we be so embarrassed as gardeners when we miss some of these weeds? They're really engineered to blend in. They are. Um, I I compare it to that we have no no words to describe plant consciousness or intentionality. Michael Pollan comments on that in one of his brilliant books. Yeah. But we're, but plants do have, we don't know what if a plant thinks or not. You know, we can hypothesize that they don't think because they're not human. But it's it seems to me that we can, we can interpret the world more easily through human analogies. So when the science fiction character, the Terminator in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, landed in the present from the future, he was naked and obvious. His first action was to mug a biker, steal his duds, and his wheels, and then take off looking like any other biker dude. The Terminator was a robot covered with human flesh, and he had extra senses displayed as a computer screen on film that helped him measure up the perfect target by height, weight, body type, and factor in the availability of a set of wheels plus keys to start up the engine. And that's what weeds do. They size up the situation, figure out if there are keys available, and then quickly adapt. And like him... When temporarily defeated, what do they say? I'll be I back. I will be back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know, some of the some of the great imitators are Goldenrod, looks exactly like my tall flocks. I took photo pulled them out, took photographs. It's so hard to tell them apart until they bloom. Mums look very much like uh chrysanthemum weed or mugwort. Crabgrass you really, I can't tell one grass from the other. And I keep studying them and studying them. And I, they, you know, they all look like grass. Yeah. And weed trees versus trees. Who's to tell you which tree is the weed? You have to study. To get to know the trees is a whole other area of study that I haven't even approached. And uh, so they, they are, they just blend in. And they're all green. Unless they're maroon like that other plant you showed me. Yeah, I sent you a photo of a plant today that... It's maroon. Um, yeah, it's maroon, and um, it starts out like the one that I sent you. I'll have to put it on the uh, show notes for this show, but it starts out with that single plant. And yeah, and then I, it spreads into community. It really does, and I, I had it in the front garden, and it kind of gave a different color. You know, I mean, it's an unusual color to have the is purple it, leaves. It, and I let it go, it but then good? I'm like, no, I've got to get it out of here. Uh, no, but does it, does it smell good? I can't tell you. Does right it have now. sort of like an interesting color palette in the maroon? It, um, if you noticed the picture that I sent you, there yeah. was um, one of the leaves was um, kind of a brownish. Yeah, and, and one is, and one is a yeah. very deep purple. So, and then it yeah. seems like it gets this um, light pink flower on the top. Yes, I, 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 you'll have to look closer at it. I, I couldn't see if the flowers were really in the mint family or not. Okay, but it looked like a minty uh, a perilla. It's called P E R I L L A. Hmm. It looked just like a perilla that I had in Long Island that spread like the Dickens. And someone obviously put it. I I've seen it for sale in the garden centers. I think it looks I've, like a coleus. I bet I bought it at a um, you know how the garden clubs yeah. have little plant sales. I bet I yeah. bought it because I remembered seeing the word perilla, and I bet I bought yeah. it and planted it and didn't know what I was doing. 
Yeah, it's, it, it looks like a coleus. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then it takes over and it makes you really mad. Yes. And it's hard to get out because it's got mint. It's got the mint family characteristics. Yes. But you can tell for sure if you smell it or if you look at the stems are slightly squarish, if you yep. look at them carefully. Yeah. So you can take a look. Same thing. I bought a variegated artemisia and that thing goes everywhere oh. too. Yeah. They, they don't know that they're variegated. They revert to their original parentage. <laughs> yes. They just have forgotten. They have one seed that forgot. Yep. Which which Where brings me to my from. yes, which brings me to my next question. You met, you touched on it earlier, the genetic plasticity of weeds, and yes. you talk about it in your book. Um, we've touched on how it applies to weeds. I was really curious earlier when you said that we've really um, taken this out of the cultivars of perennials that we yes. that we want in our gardens. Is that um, is there a downside to that in terms of? Um, are the perennials that were that we're growing from nurseries right now? I'm thinking of um, of adaptability. I'm also thinking of of annuals like impatience. Yeah, there's no crop of them. This no, year. there's no no crop of them because it's like the potato blight. You think about what happened in Ireland in the 18 whatever it was 40s was it the Great Potato Famine? Okay, they had one strain of potato, one cult, one cultivar. And it grew like the dickens for them, and they thought they were fine. Someone brought in, you know, a fungus or some infection, spread through the... Actually, Americans did that in France. They sent over some of their grape cultivars, and the French planted them in their vineyards, and it infected all their vines. When you have a monoculture or something that is bred, where they have the hardiness bred out of them, where they perform so beautifully over time and become so reliable like impatience, mm-hmm. you get to rely on their dependability and their simplicity. But that simplicity means that any invading uh, bioorganism that can figure out its genetic code that isn't changeable, it's an immutable genetic code in these plants that do so well, um, but once an invader can figure that out, that's it, they're wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, as you, as you flourish, you also, it's, it's like somebody who's extremely tall, which is a nice characteristic. We all want to reach the top of the pantry, right? Absolutely. And you know about that. I, I mean, do it every morning. Is, do it every morning. It's ideal. I mean, it's absolutely <laughs> ideal, but you're more easily spotted. And if a sniper is out, they're more likely to get you than the little short guy. Thanks for that, Nance. <laughs> I'm just jealous. What can I say? Gosh, well, I used hey. to be five six, and I keep shrinking. Listen, I rarely store anything I regularly use on the lower cupboards on the bottom shelf. So there's trade offs, right? Yeah, there is. There mm-hmm. are trade offs. I mean, you think about a rose growing in the garden, flowering, sterile flowers, beautiful, gorgeous. Cut them. The plant will regrow another rose in its stead. And then you think about a multiflora rose, which is the weedy one, and they will adapt to anything, anywhere. They'll grow anywhere. They just seem to be able to morph faster. And if you think about chemists digging up their, you know, coming up with herbicides, you know, if you've ever worked in a company, it takes a long time to come up with an idea, get it approved, process it through committee where you get the horse that turns into the camel. And then you have to pass it through the CEO, and then they decide to market it, so they test market it, and they have to do these market research groups. And then they then they 
put advertising dollars behind it, and then they put it in the store. It takes a while till the stores display it, and it takes a while till it hits the good spot in the store, so you buy it. So you're talking about years of developing a herbicide. And if a weed is reproducing every couple of weeks, one of those seedlings is going to be perfectly suited to that particular herbicide. No one knew that the weed would form that particular youngin. So they formed a youngin that has, you know, this particular sequence of DNA that that the chemists certainly couldn't have anticipated because it was some arrangement unknown to them before because the weeds are always changing and evolving. So by the time the herbicide gets to market, it's no longer suited to that weed because the weed has changed. Hmm. And that's how they survive because no one takes care of them. They have to. Yeah. One of the identifying questions you also ask is whether the plant is poisonous or dangerous. How how common are these types of weeds in the average garden? Uh, Well, you're not going to find spotted spotted water hemlock everywhere. And unless you're reading English murder mysteries, you don't find an awful lot of the (laughs) poisonous plants in everyone's garden. But there are some common ones. You know, the euphorbias. In your picture, you had euphorbia acalifa virginica. Yep. On the, on the lower left and the, on the upper right. Um, those are toxic, and they can actually irritate your skin. And the solanum family, which is not your usual edible tomatoes and potatoes, but you can't eat the foliage of potatoes. The solanum have an awful lot of... They're called deadly nightshade for a reason. There are a lot of members like black henbane that are super, super poisonous and toxic. And they can grow in, in rough soil. But, you know, we also grow poisonous plants regularly. You know, like monk, I love monk's hood. They should be great in your area because they really like it cold. They or do. Digitalis. Yeah, I'll tell you about monk's hood in Minneapolis for anybody yeah. who cares. Um, I, I put in 12 plants and I love delphinium. And of course, so then I think, oh, it's like my fall delphinium is what I think of it as. But I tell you what, there are many years that my monk's hood is blooming and Halloween time. And mm-hmm. up here, that might mean that there's snow on the ground. So then I'm kind Absolutely. of disgusted because everything else is dead. And then here's this monk's hood, just yoo-hoo, we're having a party. Well, mine, so yeah, mine like bloom it. in October, too, except for here. Here they start, everything starts blooming earlier here. And yeah. If they bloomed, out. if they bloomed even a month earlier, I think I could get on board and like them. But I've just had it. I don't like the fact that they're there all happy and fabulous and everybody else is like completely gone you- and dead. Can you grow delphiniums? Because I have never succeeded with them. Well, my my secret with delphiniums is I buy them and I treat them like annuals and I mulch them heavily in the winter to protect them. But um, how I like to buy my delphinium is I try to find a nursery and it's hard to find one um, that will sell them for about two bucks a pop and they're real little when I get them in yes. the spring. Yeah, yeah. That's how yeah, I like to, to get do in it. the soil. Yes, yeah. I don't like buying them when they're already, you know, if they're in a gallon. They don't, they don't like transplanting when they're big. No, no. They they faint. Yeah, and then you're spending, you know, $9, $10 on this plant. I don't like that. 
So I buy them when they're young. I It's on my list every spring. I buy about 20. I throw them in the ground, and um, I have them planted by Red Lily, and um, I've got some sweet How autumn gorgeous. clematis. Yep, and then oh. they bloom right under where my flag flies on the 4th of July. So oh, that's, that's I call it my wonderful. red, white, and blue area, and I love them. So, oh, but, that's you know, wonderful. Some people have told me that they can get their delphinium to grow four or five feet high. Mine don't do that. Mine are about three feet. So I don't know yeah. if I, I don't they know. They need lime. Oh, is that they, what it they is? They prefer alkaline soil, which, and I don't have that, but I do put lime in when I plant my clematis because those are essential. So try some lime around it. That might help them get taller. I, I'm going to try that. Because what happens when you adjust the pH yes. is the plant absorbs nutrients in a different fashion. It absorbs different nutrients. It, to me, that's like the weirdest thing that you could have acid soil and they'll absorb one nutrient and you get uh, alkaline soil and they'll absorb another one. But all that stuff's over my head. Well, it is for a lot of people, right? And that's going to require soil testing. And there are many gardeners that I talk to, I mean, every week that are afraid to have their soil tested. They're afraid that whole process. It just seems very yeah. foreign to them. So, Well, you can basically look and see if you live in a wooded area. It's going to be acidic. So my experience so far has been with acidic gardens. But out in the Midwest, I think there are areas that are alkaline. And certainly in the Southwest, there's a lot of alkaline mm-hmm. soil. One of the other questions you talk about is aesthetics. And you devote some sub-questions to talking about the aesthetic of the plant to determine if it's a weed or not. Let's let's uh, play a little game here. And I'll throw out one aspect of the aesthetic that you mentioned in your book and then Maybe talk to me about a weed or um, a specimen that you think of when you think of this particular aspect of the aesthetic. Okay. Tidiness. I always think about horseweed, Canisa canadensis, although I've become very fond of Sanchez oleraceus, which is the edible, it's actually called annual south thistle, even though it's a biennial. Okay. What they both do is they form their leaves at the bottom and then they get sort of ugly as they grow up and then they grow these tiny little messy looking flowers all over. Hmm. The thing that the um, south thistle does that's so unattractive is it just juts out like a tree or something in some random spot. The horseweed will form a whole sea of these ugly plants that look as gawky as teenagers interrupted in a growth spurt. Um, Oriental bittersweet is another one that is really hideous. Once it gets started, it girdles trees, and it will knock the trees over and then form like a weedy tangle, like a big bramble where the trees used to be. That's pretty horrible looking. Yeah. How about... And untidy. And untidy. Yes, absolutely. And untidy. Yeah. How about, um, you mentioned tiny flower size or inconspicuous flowers. Right. And that was, I thought that tiny flowers were very pretty when I started gardening. But there are a lot of weeds that are noteworthy for their really tiny flowers. So you can tell the difference between the specimen geraniums, not not the pelargonium, you know, the regular perennial uh, geranium, and the weedy geraniums by how, how small the flowers are. And it's the same thing with your mallows, the plants in the mallow family. Yeah. Um, the, the tiny common mallow has an easy, the flower is exquisite when you look at it under a camera or a microscope, but it, it basically just looks like a plant with little dots of color on it. And, and that's a weed. Hmm. But that being said, 
tiny flower size occurs on some of our favorite things, which are everything we eat, like we all the grasses that grow that provide 80% of our food, and trees, which we need, you know, to build homes and everything else. Yeah. So that's not the only criteria, but if you're comparing <clears throat> something in the same family, a lot of times the um, the cultivar will have big plants. So like you have the the hardy hibiscus with the flowers the size of a dinner plate. And then you look at common mallow, which has flowers that you can barely see. Hmm. And one is a cultivar and one is the weed. That's a great analogy. Yeah. How about smell or taste? Well, some things smell disgusting or taste disgusting. So they're considered weedy. But again, there are plants that we grow, like I grow Cleome. Yes. Which smells like skunk. And I have grown Fritillaria. And I once grew Aram, Aram Trucunculus, which smells like rotting meat. For a few days, my husband forbade me to plant it here. And another question you ask is, is it covered with spines, hairs, thorns, or sticky materials? What comes to mind when I mention that? Sticky materials, I think about Galium aparine, aparine, I think that's the way, catchweed bed straw. And that climbs, it particularly likes magnesium-rich soil, apparently, which I put, I put magnesium in, put Epsom salts at the base of my roses. Usually, in the spring, not every spring, but when I remember it, when mm-hmm. I get to it. <laughs> and apparently, like, so it'll grow down at the base, and then all of a sudden, you see this huge plant coming out of your roses. And when you try to pick it out, it sticks to your glove. Hmm. It, it actually can pierce your skin. There's the little tiny hairs that are spiny. And you can't get rid of it. And it, it just follows around on your shoes and your gloves and spreads everywhere else in the garden. Or... We were talking about the uh, thistles, yeah. which are, are filled with spine. Or if you have Smilax, the green briars, all the green briars have spines. However, you have spines and thorns on my favorite, roses. Well, one of my favorites. Yeah. So that's not the only criteria. Ultimately, you have to come down to the most important question of all, which is, is it something you don't want to grow? Yes, and and this is a concept that many gardeners with sympathetic hearts have a hard time with, but it can mean the difference between a typical garden and a garden that has tremendous impact. Expand on that question a little bit. You you say to 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 ask yourself, is it something you don't want to grow? Yes, and that's very important because I like most people's sense of aesthetics, even if they're different than mine. I can't plant a garden to meet other people's aesthetics. Because to me, a garden is so personal. I thought there was a good and a bad garden. I was looking at garden books to find out what plants to put down and what plants you put in it. Nobody knows. A garden is a very personal expression. But I've seen many different kinds of gardens. And as you said, they will have tremendous impact if they have a point of view. It's all about a focus or the gimmick. Yes. <laughs> the garden is not really yes. a gimmick. When it comes to that, but a focused garden is something you can sort of wrap your mind around. It's like, oh, that was a rose garden, or oh, that was an iris garden, or oh, that was a magnificent English style garden, or that was that was a beautifully manicured lawn, or what an exquisite you know layout, or what a beautiful plan. You know, you look at the 
the the Italian gardens that have carefully manicured trees and lawns and everything's geometric, and they're so gorgeous. I couldn't do that. I I, I couldn't bear it. I once tried, you know, topiarying a, a bush into the shape of like a chicken or something. <laughs> I lost patience. You know, you have to have like a long vision of like 50 years this is going to look like, you know, a triangle or whatever. What did it end up looking like? Uh, it looked like a lumpy thing. Like an amoeba? <laughs> like an amoeba. You had an amoeba topiary too? I had an amoeba topiary. <laughs> well, that's what I should have said. I didn't know. Okay, it's an amoeba. Yes, you know? I had an amoeba. Now I just, you know, prune things to get, not not to get them specifically in, in an ideal shape. I don't try to lollipop my trees. I don't like when they're lollipopped, yeah. you know, and they look like a little round circle on it. But I do try to prune them and limb them up and keep them healthy. Yeah, and but, let them look know, like trees. But I love when people have lollipop gardens. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can get into it. So it's, it's just a question of you have to go with what you like. There are many varieties of beauty in the world. Near the end of your book, I'm going to read a quote. You say, yeah. as you get to know and recognize the weed, you can nod at its good features or chuckle at its ill repute. You can make a better informed decision about what to do about it, whether or not to pull it out or what changes to make if you want to keep it out long term or with less and with less effort. It seems to me that no absolute good or evil holds sway in the garden. Each good has some drawbacks. Each evil has some of its benefits. And you've grown to have such a healthy respect and admiration for your subject matter, which is weeds. And you really want all gardeners to get to know the weeds they're dealing with, their names and characteristics, because they're going to be better gardeners for it. Let's close the show with any additional advice or wisdom you would give to the gardeners listening about weeds. Since we're wrapping up, I wanted to point out that my I have my book, Ten Ways to Tell If It's a Weed, is available now. If you go on Amazon, it's up for Kindle. And if you go on Barnes and Noble, it's good for Nook. And it's an ebook. And it's nine ninety nine. And I also have free information on individual weeds, and it's growing all the time on my newly formed website, which is www.nancytheweedlady.com, and you're all welcome to take a look at it. Um, but that you will definitely be, when you, when you know your weeds, you will not be so annoyed when you're out there spending hours pulling them out. You will be able to sing silly songs to them like I do. Or you will talk to them or look at what the soil looks like and say, how can I keep this out in the future? Um, sometimes just changing your soil conditions or saying, this is obviously a spot where, where I need to do more composting. Yeah. Or this is a spot that's in too much shade. What can I grow that will compete with the weeds? So you can read, you can take your weeds and they send you messages. That's going to be my third book is the messages from the weeds. They, sometimes they send you a jumbled message. You know, like I, every example I give, I give exceptions about how, you know, perennials will meet those same good choice cultivars will meet those same requirements like rapid growth. So like, as with anything, it's, you know, you take it with a grain of salt. They're guidelines. But as you observe your weeds, you'll see that the soil is different. To feed your garden, and you know this as a gardener, the first, the first rule of gardening is feed your bed. And if your soil is properly nourished, it will grow better. And my, my section on lawns, 
I'd like to start with weeds make fewer passes at grass that surpasses. <laughs> now, while that's not entirely true, <laughs> a healthy lawn is your best defense against the weeds. Yeah. If your if your lawn is just covered with weeds, you're doing there's something that's the matter. It's another barometer. It's another. It's another it's barometer, a, right? Yeah, another way to gather data points about your your garden. You mentioned earlier you're going to have a new book coming out, Seven Strengths of Weeds and How to Weaken Them. I love that. And when do you think that book will be coming out? Well, I'm aiming for November. It's almost finished. Should be done in the next week or two, and uh, but it takes a while to get it processed. So November to maybe April at the latest. So we'll have you back on when that book comes out. Thank you. Now, what upcoming events do you have if listeners want to try to track you down or get a chance to hear you speak? Well, I will post most of those things on my website. I do have a talk coming up in February, which is a long way away. And it's not in the middle of prime gardening season, so I don't mind traveling, which will be up in Connecticut. And then I have Another talk that I'm going to be giving at some point in Norfolk, Virginia, and I'm also in, I was just accepted for my local newspaper, so I'm very excited, the Freelance Star. I had another article put in the uh, Medina, Ohio Gazette, so I'm new to all of this, and I'm just so excited to be published, and I, I want other gardeners to avoid the same Miseries that I did in the beginning yes. when I was pulling my zinnias out by mistake yeah. and having everybody laugh at me, oh. or when I was growing chickweed on purpose because oh. I thought it was a cute little cultivar. You know, I'd like to spare somebody that agony. And also, if I can get the message of organic weeding across to anybody, trying to fight them with man made efforts is, you know, like trying to take a little slingshot to a truck. Yeah. It's not gonna. It's not gonna work. It doesn't work. They are as inevitable as death and taxes. Mm-hmm. And finding a way to live with them, and make peace with them, and keep your garden just healthy, and and fight their vigor with your cultivar's vigor, um, is the message I really wanted to convey to people that it can be done. That you don't have to be afraid of your weeds. That you are the one who could choose to cut their heads off and say, I've had it with you. You're out of here. Where else do you have that freedom? And that's who you dedicate your book to. I dedicate my book to the weeds. They are inevitable. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today, Nancy. It was so delightful. Oh, this was wonderful. I just love talking about weeds. And I could I could hear on the other end of the line that your eyes weren't rolling. Absolutely Your not. You're a pleasure to talk to. And anybody You're who has a pleasure a, to talk thank to. Thank you. And anybody who has a passion for their subject matter is a great interview. So Yes. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. And I am passionate about it. Yes. It's you making are. a retirement an absolute pleasure. I bet it there is. There aren't enough hours in the day. I'm sure there aren't. I want to remind everyone that your book is called Ten Ways to Tell If It's a Weed. And they can also find it by looking at kind of the the preview to that title because it's called Weed ID Secrets Revealed, Ten Ways to Tell If It's a Weed. And they can find it on Kendall and Nook and Kobo and iBookstore 
and Authoropolis, and it's $9.99. I've downloaded it. I have it on all my iPods and my phones, and I love having that available as a mobile resource for me when I'm at a uh, farmer's market answering questions as a master gardener. Um, I think master gardeners would find it to be a valuable tool and also just everyday gardeners so that they can get to know what's growing in their garden. The book is $9.99, and again, Nancy's site is nancytheweedlady.com, and we'll have all the information that's mentioned in the show, along with some photos um, on the show notes for this particular episode. Good. Well, we had a blast, All right. Nancy. Blessings on you and your family. Thank you, Nancy. And you should, your garden should thrive and be fruitful. Thank you. And give a give Joe a big nudge from me, will you? I will. I'm sure I he was there will. making sure you had water and all he that He did. Stuff. He went up and brought me a water and said, shh. I can imagine. I, I can already <laughs> see so the sweet. two of you. And Aisa, we're very happy. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you. This was wonderful. Well, that's it for our show today. I want to thank Nancy Peters, the weed lady, once again for being my guest. And as always, you can find this podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher and the Blackberry podcast. You can also subscribe directly to the blog post to get them via email. I'll have all the information from the show today at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M. MA.com, and you can find this episode in the top menu under the Still Growing Podcast. You can always find me at sixfootmama.com or on facebook.com backslash still growing with sixfootmama. You can also email me directly at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. Feel free to send in your questions for the Master Gardener Roundtable, which airs every other month on Still Growing. Your question will be answered either via email or during the podcast. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Okay, so today PJ and John are going to read the lyrics to Just a Rose in a Garden of Weeds to close out the show. It's a beautiful old song that was written by W.H. David and R.B. Sakes in 1949, and it's featured on the soundtrack of the James Stewart classic, It's a Wonderful Life. On my blog this week, I feature two different versions of this song. The first is by Amru Sani. Amru Sani sang Just a Rose in a Garden of Weeds back in 1949. She was a beautiful and tall singer and actress who was popular during the 1950s and 60s. And the Kingston, Jamaica paper, The Gleaner, called her the Jamaican Enchantress of Song. The other recording that I feature is by the Grand Dominion Jazz Band, and they played Just a Rose in a Garden of Weeds at the 20th Annual America's Festival at St. Martin's University in Lacey, Washington, on June 27, 2010. Here's PJ and John reading Just a Rose in a Garden of Weeds. Okay. So who's going to start with the first verse? Me. So what do we do? Ready? Go. Just a rose in a garden of weeds. Down in the devil's old garden. Amidst. Amidst all the weeds on the ground. Twas there in the gloom. I found a sweet bloom was shedding its perfume. Around. Around. Just a rose in a garden of weeds. No one knows why they planted you there. Although you're alone. 
how sweet you have grown. With no one to tend you or care. Never mind, little Rose. Never mind. Though you are lonely and nobody care. When the light sheds a dew, the tears shed for you. Just a rose in a garden of weeds. Sleep, little rose, till tomorrow. Though life be weary to you, when day brings the dawn, you'll wake with the morn to find a new sun shining through. Just a rose in a garden of weeds. No one knows why they planted you there. Although, although you're alone, how sweet have you grown with no one to tend you or care. Never mind, little Rose, never mind. Though you're lonely and nobody care, when the light sheds a dew and a tear shed for you, just a rose in a garden of weeds. Just, just a rose in a garden of weeds. Thank you. Yes. Don't clean your room.